0: Let us pray. God of us all take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. Christ, sake we pray. Amen. Well, as Sarah said at the start of the service uh, in the church calendar, we find ourselves continuing in the season of Easter tide. in these 50 days, these great 50 days that stretch from Easter, which was April 4th through Pentecost, which is next Sunday. May 23rd, we continue to ponder uh, the meaning, uh, scope, the impact of the resurrection of Jesus, and we continue to reflect on our life together as followers of the risen Christ. And so we hear this reading today from Galatians, from this letter to the church in Galatia, because in this letter, um, they're dealing with questions about who belongs and how we belong, who's in uh, and how we know it. In the earliest days of the church, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians or Greek Christians. And, uh, and so there were big questions as these two cultures began to meld together. Questions like, what do we do about the Torah? What do we do about the law, about the, about the Jewish scriptures? Uh, and what do we do about sacred practices like like circumcision? And so in this letter, Paul is sorting the particul- through the particulars of those disputes. And then in verse 28, he makes this remarkable pronouncement. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul's declaring that all of the differentiators of his day have been dissolved. It's, it's a remarkable, a hopeful, and inspiring vision. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a winsome description of what we all hope for. But when I read that text I find myself wondering who this you is that Paul is writing to for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Who is that you? Because I'm not sure it's us. It sure doesn't feel like all the differentiators of our day have been dissolved. I mean Paul writes there's no longer Jew or Greek and yet There's an awful lot of anti-Semitism yet in the world. And, you know, these days we read about this violence between Jews and Arabs in the Holy Land. Paul writes there's no longer slave nor free. But in the U.S., we're still plagued by the inequities that have accrued over 300, 400 years, uh, that that are grounded in the genocide against indigenous peoples, that are grounded in in the heritage of chattel slavery. 10 to 12 million Africans were brought to this country as slaves. Paul writes, there's no longer male and female, and yet one in four women experience sexual harassment in the workplace. So Paul announces this wondrous vision, but think of all the differentiators that we live with still, right? I mean, there's, there's red and blue, there's rich and poor, there's rural and urban, there's, there's black and white, there's heteronormative and LGBTQ. And so we hear this description of unity, but the truth is we pretty quickly, all of us, decamp to our particular tribes or clans or our particular people. And the thing is, this is even true for Paul. And even in this letter to the Galatians, I mean, Paul in this verse 28 of chapter three can see the impact, the trajectory, the, the meaning, the power of the resurrection, boundaries that are broken down, differentiators that are dissolved. But it's also clear in this letter that Paul is having a hard time himself living into that hope, living into that promise. Because this is actually a very contentious letter. In fact, there's a point where Paul, I'd say infamously, and this comes in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul wishes that his opponents, the pro circumcision crowd, he wishes that they would castrate themselves. It's sort of like Paul saying, uh, You're so much for circumcision. Yeah, well, I hope the knife slips. It would serve you right. And that's St. Paul, right? So, this remarkable vision no longer Jew and Greek, slave free. Male and female, but all been made one in Christ. It seems pretty counterfactual, but I really want it to believe, I really want it to be true. I really want to believe that it is possible. Well, for Paul, what what makes this counterfactual vision possible is that it is grounded in our identity. So the first verse of our reading today, verse 26, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus. You are all children of God through faith. All children of God. That's who we are. We share a common parentage. And that claim of identity runs throughout the scriptures, right? In, in the Hebrew scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament, right at the beginning, the book of Genesis, we're told that all of us, all humans are created in the image of God, in the imago Dei. So it's like somebody looks at a family picture and says, you're the spitting image of your mother. Or for me, you're the spitting image of your father. If you've ever seen my father, me, and my brother stand side by side. And we hear it in the New Testament too, right? 1 John 3, 1. See what love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. We are loved by God. God loves us like a mother loves her newborn baby. God loves us like a father cares for his kids. I don't know if God has a refrigerator in heaven, but if she does, Your picture is on it, and my picture is on it. In fact, it's a very, very big refrigerator because all of our pictures are on it. Never doubt that you are loved by God. And see, it's that kind of love, that perfect love of God, the love that was embodied in Christ Jesus that has the power to bind us together. And there is something about being Children of God, particularly, that's essential to making it so. I think many of us know the story, the brief story that that Mark writes about in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. There's this point where um, people are bringing their their kids, their their children to Jesus. Uh, And why not? I mean, Jesus has great wisdom. He has this power to heal. He has this aura about him that just diffuses what's holy, and pure and loving. So parents are bringing their kids to Jesus and, and his friends, his fathers, his disciples are pushing them away. You know, they got, they got more important things to do than this. But Jesus stops them and We're told he takes the children in his arms. He blesses them. And he says, let the little children come to me for it's to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. And then he goes on. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall never enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child, there's something about little children that, that is essential to apprehending, to understanding, to living into this promise of the kingdom of God, this promise of the beloved community. And, of course, intuitively, that makes some sense, right? I mean, there's the innocence of little children that hasn't been sort of corroded away yet by the cynicism we learn too soon. Um, Little children are are kind of instinctively trusting. I mean, they'll run up to you with open arms. Whereas we grow older, we start to grow a lot more wary. I get that. But I still find this saying sometimes to be kind of puzzling. What can it mean that we're to be like a little child? I mean, I'm 61 now, and it occurs to me that in a few years, there might come a point where somebody's going to have to start to feed me again. Someone's going to have to start to tuck me in again. But I don't think that's what it can be. So what is it about being children of God that's essential to receiving the kingdom of God? Believing in this possibility of the beloved community where there is no longer all of these differentiators that divide us, but we are made one in Christ Jesus. Well, so I've I've been reading about children lately and about the emerging scientific understanding of children, of their brains, of their development, that's reshaping the ways that we think about children and so reshaping the ways that we think about ourselves. Because for a long time, children were understood by adults, by parents, by scientists, by psychologists, by philosophers. Children were understood more or less to be sort of unformed, nascent, you know, deficient adults, they didn't really do very much. And it was just sort of waiting for them to grow up and be useful. And you know, I'm mean, truthful for a long time, kids at a pretty young age had to start working in fields and on farms and in factories. So they had to grow up pretty fast. But what scientists are learning is that, that children and adults are actually very different. In fact, children and adults are almost two different species of homo sapiens. Their brains, our brains, function in different ways. We each need each other, but we are different from each other. And so, it's not just you know children as, I mean, truthfully, defective adults. And it's not as if there's just a linear development from childhood to adulthood. One scientist, one writer said that it's more like metamorphosis. It's like that transformation from caterpillar to butterfly, except in this case, it's reverse metamorphosis because children are more like butterflies. We adults were actually the caterpillars in the crowd. So adults and children, very different. As much as children have to learn from us, uh, we have to learn from them, which is something that Kurt, our pastor of youth, has been saying for a very long time. So specifically, I've been reading a book uh, called The Philosophical Baby by uh, Alison Gopnik. Dr. Alison Gopnik, She runs the Cognitive Development Learning Lab at Cal. She's a professor in the psychology department and in the philosophy department down there at Berkeley. Uh, Also, part of an AI group, an artificial intelligence group. And her basic thesis is this that what makes humans humans is our unmatched capacity to change, to change ourselves, change things, to change the world, to change the future. And that capacity for change is very dependent on children. For humans, childhood lasts much longer than any other species, all right? And I think from my mother and father, in my case, they probably thought it lasted too long. But that, that period of time is critical because it's what children do in childhood that makes all that change possible in adulthood. And she points to two specific aspects of childhood, two ways that our children are different than adults. Children in the first case, <coughs> excuse me, children are explorers. They have to be. Adults, we're exploiters. You think about it, for infants, everything is new. And so they are taking in everything. And as soon as they can crawl, they start to get into everything. They are explorers. And, uh, you know, if you've ever gone on a walk with a two year old, you know, that's true. Right. They notice everything. They see things that we haven't noticed before which means it can take forever to get wherever you're trying to go because, you know, you got to stop for the dandelion. and and, oh look, there's a puppy over there. Hey, there's a plane overhead. Gee, I wonder where that crack leads in the sidewalk. Take you forever to get there because they have to stop for everything. They're explorers. For adults, we just want to get where we're going. I want to get to the post office. I want to get to the store. I want to get to the restaurant in time for our reservation. We have the information we need. We use it. We exploit it to get what we want. That comes at a cost. We don't notice the plane in the air. I don't even notice there's an alley there to wonder what's down. Kids are learning. We're using what we already know. So children are explorers, adults are exploiters. There are advantages to being adults, but it comes at a cost. Second, children have what's sometimes called a lantern consciousness. Adults have a spotlight consciousness as adults we see what's in front of us. We see what's in that little circle of the spotlight on whatever we're doing. We focus on what needs to be done, on the data that's useful, on the task that it's hand that's at hand, and and often nothing else. So there's this famous experiment, and I referenced it a, a few years back. I think, I think I even showed the video, but uh, these days we're trying to be a lot more conscious about streaming and copyright. So you're gonna have to look for the video on your own. But there was this, this experiment. <clears throat> where scientists uh, ask people to look at a video, to watch a video. And in the video, there were people dressed in, in black t-shirts and people dressed in white t-shirts, and they were throwing a basketball around amongst the group. And uh, people who watched it were asked to count the number of times that the players in white passed the ball, right? And so start the video, people watch, and they're counting, and they're, they're watching, and then the video ends. And the researchers ask, well, how many times did people in white uh, catch the ball? And they'll say 15. And then they'll say, did you notice anything else? Did you notice anything unusual in that video? And people say, no, we just saw people, you know, passing a basketball and counting people in white catching it. And so then the researchers say, well, let's watch that video again. And this time, you know, don't worry about counting the the, the pass. Just just watch the video. And at that point, they notice that in the midst of it, there's someone dressed in a black gorilla costume who walks right through the middle of, of, of the video. And they'd never noticed it. See, that's that spotlight consciousness. You fulfill the task, but you miss a lot of what is going on. Children, and they walk into a room, it's like they're carrying a lantern. It lights up everything, they see everything, okay? Explorers and exploiters, lantern consciousness, spotlight consciousness. And the thing is, those differences matter. Because children are seeing what is, but with their openness to everything, they're also seeing what is possible. They're seeing what could have been different. They're seeing what could be different. They're seeing what philosophers call counterfactuals, And it's that capacity of childhood to learn, to explore, to imagine that makes change possible. So, you know, when we read Paul as adults, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine sometimes what he is describing. With our spotlight consciousness, we tend to see what is, And less so, what could be? And with our exploiter mentality, we use the information we know, we use
1: the data that we
0: have, but but that can kind of leave us stuck in the status quo. And so that understanding helps me start to appreciate what Jesus means when he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Now, of course, we're not going back to childhood. But as adults, we can uh, try to think, explore, to learn, to imagine more like kids. And um, Alison and Gottmik suggests uh, two ways, two practices. The first is travel. And especially if you can travel to a place that's very different from where you grew up. If you've ever had a chance to travel to a foreign country, you know it's like being a kid again. Nothing's familiar everything's new and so you notice everything right that's the explore brain that's that lantern consciousness kicking in so when i was 21 i had a chance to go down to the country of haiti for six weeks i grew up in california i would never been in a place like that in my life but driving in from the airport driving into the capital city driving into port-au-prince it was sort of overwhelming i mean i was aware of every sight of every sound of every smell i can actually still call to mind the aroma of the fires that were set along the road on the way into town. People burning the charcoal that they produced there to make their suppers, right? I can remember all of that on the drive from the airport. Well, I live now up in Hollywood, up in Northeast Portland, I can drive out to PDX back and not remember a single thing. I can barely remember being in the car, in fact. But when we travel, it activates that, that childlike consciousness and we can see things that we hadn't seen before. And that helps us see others in ways we haven't seen them before. It helps us see ourselves in a new way because it helps us imagine these counterfactuals, it helps us imagine these new possibilities. Now, of course, with, tra- uh, with COVID, travel has been restricted, but uh, things are starting to open up again. And so, if you can, I hope you will travel uh, or maybe even consider serving in another place with a group like Mennonite Mission Network or Mennonite Disaster Service or Civilian Peacemakers or Peace Corps. Or maybe go on a learning tour with Mennonite Central. I went down to the border a couple of years ago, and it was, it was, I would say, a transformational trip. But even if you can't leave home, there are other ways to travel. Uh, we used to spend a lot of our Saturday nights with girls at home watching Rick Steves and then Globe Trekker. Um, books, films, they can take you almost anywhere in the world. So travel is one. The second way to sort of activate this childlikeness is play. Adults work, kids play. In fact, the definition of play is not working, right? Because play is not productive. It's not efficient. It doesn't have a useful outcome. We play just for the pleasure of playing. So it might be riding a bike. That's what I like to do. I was out for a really good ride with some friends on Friday down uh, by the Willamette, just north of Salem. Might be playing um, table games. It might be going to a play or watching a movie or reading a science fiction novel. But when we play, and especially when we learn something new, you know, take up golf or learn how to needlepoint. When we take up something new, we activate that explore mentality that kids have. Now, it's not easy because as adults, there's always this pressure to get more done. Renee Brown says uh, it takes courage to say yes to rest and play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Exhaustion as a status symbol. Well, summer's coming up. COVID's winding down. So I say, you know, we should make dodgeball a status symbol instead. We should make ultimate frisbee or croquet a status symbol. Maybe for Mennonites, we got to play make, make playing Rook a status symbol. But whatever it is, I hope you get out and let yourself play. Now, travel, play, neither of those are particularly religious. But they help us to see. They help us to learn. They help us to react that explore brain, that that lantern consciousness. And those skills of childhood can help us as adults. They can help us to imagine other possibilities. They can help us to imagine the ways that we and the world can be changed. They can help us to imagine and apprehend and to believe the counterfactuals of the gospel, to believe the possibilities of beloved community to believe that the differentiators that divide us can be dissolved to believe that we can love our neighbors we can love strangers that we can even love enemies help us to believe that we can be made one in christ may it be so amen